Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. On December 23, 1971, President Richard Nixon signed the National Cancer Act, which declared a war on the deadly group of diseases. Although the law would lead to safer, more effective treatments and, and save hundreds of thousands of lives, it didn't erase the stigma associated with a diagnosis of what's been called the Big C. In from Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement, her new book from Lincoln Square Books, Judith L. Pearson describes how 15 years after that legislation, 23 men and women, all with a personal connection to cancer, came together for a weekend summit and created the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship with the goal of destroying myths and stereotypes. It's my great pleasure to welcome Judith Pearson to our show now. Hello. Hello there. Now, hasn't there always been a political aspect to the way that government has addressed cancer? Well, you know, politics and medicine make strange bedfellows. <laughs> um, obviously, politicians, uh, regardless of, uh, of party, uh, are also uh, subject to cancer. So it is a nonpartisan issue everybody mm. would like to get a handle on. Um, Ronald Reagan developed prostate cancer, for example. That's right. That's right. Or colon uh, cancer. Colon cancer. But unfortunately, um, it's also, like so often happens, um, a political tool. Um, and early on, before Nixon's Cancer Act, as you described, and before all that money went into research, um, it didn't have a very uh, bright outcome. So the politicians were sort of walking this line, you know, we, we would love to get a handle on it, we don't know how, and the more we publicize it, the more our failure is looking us in the face. Now, didn't Kennedy and Johnson suggest legislation to engage in a war against cancer prior to the 1970s, uh, uh, at, at a time when only 50% of, of those diagnosed with cancer survived. So what they happened? Did. Sorry. So what happened to the Kennedy and Johnson's legislation? Well, of course, President Kennedy's administration was, was cut short by the assassination. Um, so he was unable to get any further. Um, President Johnson, felt that, the, that a war on cancer um, would certainly fit nicely into um, his social programs. Um, but Vietnam was taking up so much of his time and so much of the treasury that he too had to, had to set aside the war on cancer. And so then ironically, <laughs> Nixon came along and, and his advisors came to him and said, you're just not popular, but we think if you launch a war on cancer, your chances for re-election look good. And he was like, done, I'm in. Mm -hmm. So what impact did the act have? And, uh, and obviously it failed to address things, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it anymore. Well, yes and no. In fact, I had an op-ed piece come out um, last Friday um, about the war on cancer being a magnificent failure. Um, not only was Nixon's hope um, by promising the $1.3 billion, which in 1971, even split over five years, that was a tremendous, um, unheard of amount of money. So even though that money did uh, funnel into the National Cancer Institute, um, 
it was discovered along the way that cancer is not one disease, but many. Um, there were those in Nixon's administration who also promised to cure the disease, thinking that made for a clever tagline. And, you know, we just landed somebody on the moon. So why, why couldn't we be the nation that cured cancer? Um, so we, we didn't achieve that. We didn't eradicate it. There isn't just a simple pill as, as um, was hoped. But what did happen was treatments got better. We learned to mediate treatments so that um, we didn't blast people with massive radiation or completely destroy other um, bodily functions with chemotherapy. We learned to, to temper it all. And then of course, we also um, discovered the human genome. We learned how to use immunotherapy and targeted therapy. So we're doing a much better job. We certainly But 15 are. years and after the National Cancer Act was passed in, in 1985, 1986, weren't nearly one half the cancer diagnoses still fatal? Um, by that time, no. By that time, we had started to really get a handle on the blood cancers, especially lymphomas and leukemias. And um, we, were, we were looking, it was looking much better, to be sure. Um, but in the amount of time that has passed since 1986, that's when things really got better, primarily because we are so much more adept at early detection. Now, do you see any parallels in the way that politicians, administrators, and scientists have been dealing nowadays with the coronavirus uh, in comparison to what happened before things finally improved in, in, in terms of cancer? Uh, you know, I really think so. Again, as I said earlier, uh, politics and medicine make strange bedfellows, but they seem to keep finding themselves in bed together. Um, and it's, it's, hard, it's hard to wrap your mind around that if you are a survivor or you have family members who are survivors of cancer or COVID, um, that, that your or your family member's health is, is sort of being a political pawn. The, the good news, if, if you can step aside, if we can step aside from the politics for a minute, the good news is that as the vaccine for COVID was being developed, um, the uh, scientific community went to the National Institutes of Health, pulled together many of the institutes, um, including National Cancer Institute, who for a long time had been doing clinical trials, finding new uses for old drugs, combining drugs. And if it hadn't been for cancer research, um, and maybe I'm a little partial, but if it hadn't been <laughs> for the types of research that had been done over the last, even the last decade uh, for cancer treatment, um, the, those working on the COVID vaccine wouldn't have had that wealth of information from which to draw. Isn't part of the problem in dealing with cancer the fact is that, as you said earlier, there are so many different types of cancers. What do they all have in common and where does the name cancer come from? Well, what they all have in common is out of control cellular growth, basically. It's, it's, a, it's a cell whose growth switch uh, got stuck in the on position. And, you know, if you've ever had a bathtub overflow because your child thought it would be fun to see how full he could get it, um, mm -hmm. you can imagine what 
an out of control cell growth looks like. Um, and since our bodies are made up of, of so many different types of cells, um, all with the possibility of getting stuck in the on switch, um, that means that, that it can grow um, in, in any cell from uh, fluids to bone to organs. Um, so that's really the greatest similarity. But yes, I love the story um, of where it came from. Um, back when medicine and science were just in their infancy, um, Hippocrates saw that looking at a, a cancer cell that looked like a crab with its legs all akimbo. And he didn't know what it was called. It was just some kind of a growth that he was studying um, on a um, cadaver. But he decided because it looked like a cancer that that's what he kept calling it. And, and the term just stuck. And it's, it's an amazing thing to me that even today, it is not the number one killer in this country or in the world. Um, heart disease takes, takes that, um, that title but it is certainly a terrifying diagnosis. And, and the on switch can be many different things, can't it? It can be something that we've done to ourselves like smoking, but it can also be a genetic predisposition. That's right, that's exactly right. Genetic mutations um, are something that we're certainly continuing to study with um, great veracity but they're only responsible for a, a truly a small percentage of the cancer diagnoses, um, even though they do get an awful lot of uh, publicity, particularly the, the BRCA, BRCA mutation, because that was the first mutation to be found. And, and so it's known as the breast cancer gene mutation. Um, and yes, um, environmental things, whether it's air pollution, water pollution, um, other things that we ingest or put on our bodies, more and more um, elements are being discovered or, or ingredients are being discovered that change um, cells. And, and so we're better at paying attention to that. But you know, Leonard, at the end of the day, it's kind of just a really bad hand that cancer survivors are dealt. It, that's really the, the most often uh, cause of cancer. But also it is a disease of the aging and we are an aging society. Um, and so the older we all get, it's, it's kind of good news, bad news. Yay, I'm older, boo, mm -hmm. now I have a greater chance of getting cancer. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at large is Judith L. Pearson. Her book, From Shadows to Life. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And uh, you didn't this book grow to some degree out of your personal experience? What happened when you received the diagnosis of a triple negative breast cancer? Well, you know, it was the worst possible time for me to, to um, have a cancer diagnosis. But then as I always say, does cancer- Is there ever a good time? At a good time, that's <laughs> right, that's exactly right. I was a newlywed, just um, married the man of my dreams. Um, my children were grown and, and doing well, although uh, my oldest son was about to deploy to Afghanistan. Um, mm. But I felt like I really had the world by the tail. And um, so this is, this is my teaching moment 
for the audience. I found a lump in my cleavage two months after the happy mammogram letter. Congratulations. We'll see you next year. So um, never fail to do those self-examinations. Um, and so I, I triple negative is a relatively rare form of breast cancer, um, only about 15% of all diagnoses. But it's what does triple negative mean? It's extremely aggressive. So um, breast cancer can be fueled by um, hormones or not. And mm -hmm. so there are three major hormones that fuel breast cancer. Um, and if you have a breast cancer that is not fueled by those, then it's known as triple negative. It is treated differently. And actually after the Human uh, Genome Project was completed, the cells of triple negative breast cancer actually are more akin to ovarian cancer, which is, is really kind of rare. Um, so the treatment you know, then was advised a little bit more as a result of that. So yeah, it was terrifying. I couldn't find the next great story to tell. I'm a biographer by profession. So I started a nonprofit and um, from the nonprofit met an amazing um, survivor who was one of the founding members of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And from there, the book grew. And um, so my favorite line is always to, to tell people, just find the treasure in your wreckage. Cancer was certainly a wreckage in my life, but I, I'd like to think that the people I've met and this book um, can be seen as, as the treasure. Your previous books uh, were uh, Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy, uh, Belly of the Beast, uh, POW's inspiring true story of faith, courage, and survival aboard the infamous uh, World War II Japanese hellship Orioku Maru, and this Very is good. a <laughs> this is a this is a far cry from either of those. Now, when you got that diagnosis, what did your oncologist tell you? Well. Um... She told me that it was, um, as I mentioned, a very aggressive type of cancer. Um, and because I research um, for my books, I went to work researching the type, the treatment. Um, I had a mastectomy and reconstruction, so I researched that. Um, and she told me... <laughs> that I was really fortunate. Um, I was extremely healthy. So they were just going to blast the dickens out of me mm -hmm. to, to get rid of whatever remaining cancer cells there might be after my surgery. And um, instead of treatment every three weeks, I had it every two weeks and it, it did blast the dickens out of me. There's no, no doubt about that. But the interesting thing, Leonard, was at the end of it all, I just expected the old Judy would jump out of the chemo cake. And I was astounded that survivorship was different than my life before cancer. I truly expected, maybe it's the Pollyanna in me, that I, I would be just the same. And I and, and you, and the, the oncologist And the oncologist, no one else told you that you wouldn't go back to being who you were before you developed the cancer? No. I mean, obviously, I knew that I'd have a... a prosthetic breast, but um, mm. I, I never expected um, the physical collateral damage that my drugs caused, 
um, I was really fortunate. I, I, you know, had a loving husband and I had um, ample insurance coverage, which many people have neither of those. They lose um, insurance sometimes. Exactly, exactly. But, but I, it, you know, certainly the, the little, ooh, will it ever come back? Bubble floats through my head every once in a while. But my fellow survivors suffer far more difficult and challenging um, situations than that. Um, but, and that, that's really a shame, I think. You report that when you ask your oncologist about the lingering physical side effects of your treatment, she told you that she was busy saving your life and anything more than that wasn't important. So, uh, uh, right. Th so then I got you just ignored the whole psychological <laughs> aspect of this. Yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, I love the oncology community. I mean, I, what they, what they do, both the doctors and certainly the nurses and the oncology social workers and oncopsychologists, um, they are all wonderful. And she was, it was just a misstep. And it, 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 I'm the kind of person that if challenged, take that challenge to the nth degree. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start making more noise about this. I can't be the only person. There must be someone else out there. And I went to work finding um, fellow survivors to start comparing notes. And the interesting thing is that when I, when I wrote this book, and particularly when I got to the part about the first meeting of, of the National Coalition of Can for Cancer Survivorship and how they all came together and they were all astounded um, the 23 of them, that they had similar feelings, but had never been able to express them, those that were uh, survivors. So but, that's kind uh, of how I felt. I, I could relate to that. And I, of course, had cancer 25 years later. So I had the benefit of far more resources. But you, you, uh, you kind of excuse the oncologist because you say that when it comes to cancer, medical education and training focus almost exclusively on diagnosis and treatment and, and totally ignore the psychological aspects of it? That was my feeling at the time. Yeah, that it that I, I think Has it changed. I think that it has in even in 10 years, it's been 10 years, it'll be 10 years next month that I um, was diagnosed. And I think even in those 10 years, a great deal has changed. Again, social workers, psychologists um, are far more available at cancer centers than they were even 10 years ago. Um, and the, in, the internet keeps growing. There are support groups, you know, everywhere. So we have far more to draw from than, than I might have. Um, and certainly than they did 35 years ago. And the other thing that I think is interesting too, it's one thing if you live in a big city and you can just say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go find another oncologist or I'm gonna find a support group or a social worker. But the, the vast part of this country is not large and urban. So in those smaller areas, in those more rural areas of our country, um, that's where books and um, access to internet are so important to, to give people the comfort and the support that they need. So do you think so, so that many of the misconceptions about cancers and their causes 
uh, are, are disappearing. And didn't many people think it was contagious and uh, it could cost people their families, their jobs, their insurance, their sense of self-worth. They couldn't join the military or adopt children and childhood survivors couldn't find college roommates. Is that all changing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, look, 35 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, the, the diseases that, that humanity feared were all contagious. So it just made sense then that because cancer was killing and was fear, feared that that was probably contagious as well. They couldn't figure out how, but it just seemed like that was, that was what it must be. The contagion theory finally dissipated, certainly by the time um, the NCCS was founded, but, um, but still it was difficult to get around the habits. And it was, it was a long time, probably another decade before survivors really felt comfortable saying that they had a cancer diagnosis in their history because you just didn't know how people were going to react. And, and one of the big things, if I could just interject this, one of the big things that also came out of that founding um, of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship was the definition of survivorship. They, they wanted people to know, they, they felt, and I agree, it begins at diagnosis because that's when we start surviving cancer. There's no magic three years, 10 years, five years. Um, the medical community still talks about that. But when I speak about survivorship, I mean, whether you've been told you have no evidence of disease or you've been told that you must live with your cancer, you are a survivor. Um, but the other things certainly have gotten better. The, um, you can't be fired for having cancer, but several years ago, one of the gals who was a part of my nonprofit was uh, let go because her um, treatment for metastatic ovarian cancer was keeping her out of the sales field. She was a cosmetic salesperson. And so she was downsized and downsized until she couldn't afford to keep working for them. And um, that just absolutely broke my heart. Wasn't there a time when some physicians didn't even tell their patients that they had cancer? And uh, have we stopped seeing the euphemism of a long illness to describe cancers leading to death that was uh, often used in obituaries rather than explicitly saying that the cause of death was cancer because that would uh, reflect uh, an apparent stigma? Well, so addressing the first, I think that um, while, while physicians' um, jobs are to cure patients, certainly they have to also deal with the death of their patients. And they are human. And while I know that they try very hard to uh, keep emotions at bay, I don't know how they could not help but feel something when, they, when their patients die. Um, so I think that physicians felt it was just easier at a point in time where only 40 or 50% of, of those diagnosed survived. It was just easier not to tell them that was the direction they were going, not to mention the fact that they were concerned that if people 
thought they were going to die, um, they just throw in the towel and die. You know, not, not everybody says, okay, I'm going to show you and, um, and, and, and fight the disease. So I think that was part of the not telling along with, as we talked about before the, the social stigma of it all. Um, but then the other thing that I think has changed, and I think this is sort of a, a, one of the, again, one of the treasures in the wreckage. I think now we are far more inclined to announce in obituaries how someone has died from what cancer, because then we also say in lieu of flowers or, you know, the family asks that donations be made to, and then some organization is listed. And there's two benefits to that. The first benefit, of course, is, is if an organization um, can receive a donation in memory of someone, um, that's important. But there's a really interesting theory that there is healing in helping. So for, for survivors themselves, if they are able to take the focus off themselves and just use their experience to give back to the greater good, there's a lot of healing that goes on with that. But the same is true for family members. So if caregivers who have, you know, gone through this horrific disease with their loved one and then the loved one dies, if they can use their experience to give back to some other entity, to an organization, that helps them heal as well. In the 1970s, wasn't a relatively popular alternative cancer treatment in the United States a specialized form of talk therapy based on the idea that, that cancer was caused by a bad attitude and that people with a cancer personality, people who are depressed or oppressed or self-loathing or afraid to express their emotions, were believed to have manifested cancer through some kind of subconscious desire? Don't you love that? Yeah. <laughs> and blame mean, the victim. Right on, right on. And if that was true, if we really could, um, you know, change ourselves with self-talk, um, man, I, I'm a millionaire mm. sitting here <laughs> talking to you right now. Um, I think to a certain extent, um, and we've, we've all heard this, self-talk is very important um, because you certainly can bring yourself down by looking at and pointing out all the bad things um, or all the things that you feel are objectionable. Um, so there, there may be a small kernel of truth, but the idea, the notion that you actually caused your cancer, mm. um, I can't think of, of anything worse than that. You know, it's, it's, it just, I can't even imagine what that, what that must feel like. And, and yet, um, Again, this is a long time ago, but uh, 50, 60 years ago, cancer patients, survivors, um, walked around thinking that. And, and, mm. a, and a large number of them thought, you know, had guilt over causing their cancer. Or perhaps their cancer was caused because um, they, they were struck on some part of their body that then developed a tumor or, you know, it just, it, things like that just break my heart. But the, the misconceptions come from lack of, of knowledge about the disease, which we certainly have a better handle on today. 
Well, it's uh, prevent uh, the, the people who are preventing the, the cure by not becoming sufficiently happy and loving. But the idea was was ridiculed by Susan Sontag, who who published illness as metaphor while she was right. recovering from treatment for breast cancer in 1978. Did that finally change things? I think so. I mean, she is her book is probably one of the most quoted with all the research that I did. Um, her book was referenced and quoted so many times. Um, and there was so you have to remember, too, in the, the 70s, um, that was a wonderful age. That was the the women's movement and the civil rights movement. And we were we were all wanting to stand up and um be proud of who and what we were and being proud of who and what you are certainly then helps with the between the years stuff. But it was also a time when, um, when breast cancer treatment changed considerably, um, no longer was the horrifically disfiguring uh, Halstead method of mastectomy performed where, you know, taking tissue, if that was a good thing, maybe if we took bone, that would be better. We learned now mm. how metastasis happens and it's not by carving somebody up. Mm. But the other thing that was, that was really um, just a horrific thing. In fact, one of the doctors who I interviewed, um, Dr. Ellen Lichter said it was, it was just a barbaric habit. And that was the one step mastectomy. So you have a lump, like I found, you go to your doctor and before they could do simple biopsies, which are now done just with a little local, they needed to anesthetize you. And the doctor would say, we will take the lump. We will send it to pathology. If it's cancer-free, uh, you'll wake up with a breast. If it's cancerous, you'll wake yeah. up without a breast. So, you know, legions of women were waking up, pawing at their chest to see whether or not their breasts had been mm. re removed. And that went on until Rose Kushner um, in 1978 stood up and said, no, you do the biopsy, you wake me up. And when she woke up, her doctor was staring at her saying, you've just killed yourself, you have cancer. So she fired him, found a new doctor, and that whole one-step procedure um, was done. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Judith Pearson, I'd like to take uh, just a, a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or uh, by calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number, 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while also spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. 
And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement by my guest, Judith Pearson. At whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. But the important thing is to take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org on the web. Why not become a part of this amazing community of Leonard Lopez at Large listeners that's our only funding source because we can only keep independent radio alive on the New York radio dial with the help of listeners like you. If you're listening to this at home right now thinking, well, uh, I've supported WBAI in the past, but your renewal has lapsed, please consider this, your renewal notice. Seriously, though, we need your support now more than ever. So why not go to your phone or computer right now and make that tax-deductible donation to the show and the station that brings it to you. And please don't forget to make the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us to everyone who has donated so far, thanks. And now we get back to my guest, Judith L. Pearson, whose latest book is From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. It's published by Lincoln Square Books. You mentioned um, some of the the treatments. Now, wasn't the first cancer cure found for Hodgkin lymphoma in the 1830s by, by Dr. Thomas Hodgkin? Not the cure, but the but the disease itself. Oh. Um, he was he was known as the curator of the dead, which is not nearly so glamorous a title as <laughs> as writer or radio host. Um, no. He <laughs> he was um, uh, in London and um, he performed minor autopsies. You know, in on. Uh, on demand, I guess is the best way to put it, um, as he was asked to. Um, But he discovered that a group of young men um, had all died of the same kind of odd looking um, cells. But it wasn't until um, a couple decades later that uh, another scientist, um, Sternberg, noticed by this time he had a far better microscope, noticed um, that the cells actually looked like tool two owl eyes staring back at him. So it was, they were, it, they were known as the owl eyes. And hmm. um, he identified it as the same thing that Hodgkins had uh, seen several decades earlier and Hodgkins had the naming right. But you are correct in saying that it was um, the great success story um, uh, and, and the first cancer that was successfully treated um, with chemotherapy, with combined chemotherapy in the late 60s. So when did the idea of using chemotherapies as a way of treating cancers come into the picture? And uh, up until then, I guess it was all just cut the cancer out. Cut the cancer out. We also did um, cobalt radiation therapy, Mm -hmm. which was... um, extremely harsh and um, actually caused other cancers to form. Pardon me? Yeah, they could be harmful in themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So again, it wasn't until um, the the late 60s, the decade of the 60s, but certainly the late 60s, that chemotherapy drugs 
were tried. And then um, uh, Dr. Vince DeVita and Paul Carbone um, came up with the idea that, well, if one drug works, what if we mixed two of them together? Um, and while that sounds like some mad chemistry set, um, it actually it actually worked. And one of the drugs that they used um, was mustard gas, which hmm. had been used during the World War, but World Wars, but but the people who what mustard gas does as a uh, as a weapon is kill cells. And so... Um, so World was, War One, we were creating, already seeing cancers created? Uh, we were seeing chemotherapy created without really uh -huh. understanding it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And one of the other... So one of the other things then that began to develop, and, and this book is a combination or is a group biography following five people who... Five of the people who mm. were... Um, founding members and, and who led the cancer survivorship movement. But throughout it, in order for their stories to make sense, um, and because I love history so much, the histories of other organizations and other disciplines needed to be told. And one of those is the Oncology Nursing Society. So it, the doctors at that uh, early on delivered the chemotherapy or the radiation, but it was the nurses then who were left to take care of people and, um, and who spent the most time with them. And there was no oncology nursing. They had no way of, of connecting themselves to one another and, until the organization was founded in 1975. But what they were seeing was that some patients who the, who, could have been looked at as non-compliant, instead said, I've had enough treatment. I, I'm not, I don't want two years worth of chemotherapy for breast cancer, I'm done. And those patients fared just as well with, um, lesser, uh, with a, a less lengthy time of treatment um, as those who completed the entire two years or whatever their, whatever their recommended dosage was. So, um, so where we've gotten to today has been very much a joint effort between the doctors and the nurses and the researchers and the patients themselves um, who have taught that quality of life is far better than quantity of life or far more important than quantity of life. Did you know that a cancer survivorship movement even existed before you became interested in it? Because to be honest, uh, I, I was mostly unaware of it until I read your book. <laughs> Yeah, not something we learn about in history class, is it? Um, no, I had I had no idea, no idea, and until I met um, the woman I referred to earlier, Susie Lay, in two thousand eighteen. But that was it's, after you decided to uh, start your own survivorship nonprofit, right? I started my own organization. Um, which focuses on the, the healing is helping idea. Before cancer, I was working on a book about women's courage and why that's important to, why it's important to understand the difference between women's courage and men's courage. And one of the chapters, ironically, was about women um, facing uh, chronic and catastrophic illness. And a part of that chapter dealt with volunteering and the health benefits of volunteering, which, which exists. And again, it goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier. Um, when you feel good 
about doing something, you feel good all over and it's actually good for you. And volunteering elicits all those good, uh, those happy hormones, the good feeling hormones. Um, and that's good for you, regardless of, of what else might be going on physically. So that was kind of, that is the premise behind my nonprofit, but still I didn't know there was a cancer survivorship movement. Um, and yet in writing this book and watching how they grew, this is actually a blueprint for creating a social movement. You know, they, they came together with, with a like cause. They said, this is going to be hard, but we're going to do it. They did it. And I don't, I don't know that, that they are actually, I hope that they're pleased that I have brought their history to light, but I think the work that they have accomplished, the goals that they have accomplished far outweigh the importance of pats on the back for having launched the cancer survivorship movement. So don't, don't beat yourself up that you don't know about it. I didn't know about it either. (laughs) You do pat a lot of people on the back and we'll get to some of them, but how long before the NCCS, uh, was created, uh, uh, did it become a grassroots cause and, and a national mission? So they, um, they, they came together on that weekend that you mentioned in 23 founders. Yep. In 1986. And during that weekend, um, they wrote a charter, they defined survivorship, they gave themselves goals, they named themselves, um, they, unbeknownst to each of them, um, they sort of had a different vision of how this might go, what direction it might go, whether it act as a clearinghouse and you could be in Iowa or New Hampshire or Mississippi and call a number in Albuquerque because that's where they were founded and say, hey, I need help. And the office would be able to say, well, here, go here, do this, get that. So that was one notion. Um, The other notion was that they would develop chapters in each state and the chapters would be, would be autonomous, autonomous, excuse me, but live under the NCCS umbrella. And, um, and in the end, neither really happened because they realized that they could really change things um, through advocacy and through being, um, you know, at, at the doorsteps of Congress and, um, and the National Cancer Institute. Um, and and but, they did go to the doorsteps of cancer, uh, Congress, didn't they? Uh, Twelve years they after did. they uh, they created the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, weren't didn't over two hundred thousand people march in Washington? So uh, this was a fabulous story. I loved this story. And again, you know, when when I thought of these years as I was writing this, and I was I all these different uh, benchmarks um, within the movement and and in the book. And I kept thinking, gosh, you know, 1986, my children were six and three. Um, Gosh, 1971, I'm dating myself here, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. 1971, when Nixon signed the Cancer Act, I I was graduating from high school. And then this March on Washington um, actually occurred uh, on a Saturday afternoon And it was so massive 
and so impressive that, and it was not only the March on Washington, but there were individual marches at state capitals across the country. And there was video that was broadcast live um, at the Michigan, Michigan State football game. And I think I was sitting in the stands that day (laughs) at the Michigan State game and never even realized that this was going on. But their march was really uh, monumental. Um, When they came up with the idea, it was sort of based on the fact that Louis Farrakhan had just had his million man march. And so the CEO said, well, gosh, if, if That could happen. Why can't we do a march on Washington? So I've been telling the story that the vision that I get is the same scene in Forrest Gump where he's standing on stage in Washington, D.C., talking about Vietnam, but there's no audio. And then the audio audio comes back on just as he says his name. And Jenny jumps into the reflecting pool and yells his name back. So if you picture that scene and all those people just located behind where Forrest is standing on the mall, you can imagine what that must have looked like. And it was a hot, steamy day in Washington, D.C. But 200,000 people, uh, led by General Norman Schwarzkopf, Queen Noor was there, the Vice President was there, um, Vice President Gore, um, There were uh, Crosby and Stills were there. Uh, Scott Hamilton, the ice skater, was there. I mean, it was a cavalcade of stars. And the whole idea was, again, to bring attention to survivorship, that cancer doesn't end when treatment does. And, And survivorship, and these are Ellen Stovall's words, not mine, it's just not sexy. You know, we want to cure it. We want to treat it. We want to take care of patients as they're going through treatment and, and their families. But once you're done, it's, it's just, you know, you're done, move on. And we know that that's not true. So her whole hope was to bring attention to survivorship and, um, and bring organizations together because survivorship is the great success story of oncology. You know, if oncology wasn't successful, there would be no survivors. So, um, so it, it was her hope that we could better celebrate oncology by bringing attention to survivorship. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Judith L. Pearson, whose latest book is From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. It's published by Lincoln Square Books, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So um, we, the NCCS has been around for a while now. How, what are some of the things that they've succeeded in achieving over those years? Well, um, the, the goal that was most pressing, I mean, it, it's kind of hard, I guess, to decide to really say what's most pressing. So I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting words into their mouths, as it were. Um, But the discrimination, the employment discrimination Mm. was the most egregious that they went after. And um, along with Survivor health care reform. Right. Along with that um, was health care reform to have cancer recognized as uh, as a chronic condition, cancer survivorship as a chronic condition. So, 
you know, some of the physical fallout is such that um, people need further treatment for other um, maladies caused by the cancer or by the cancer treatment. So, for example, mm-hmm. early on when radiation was was more powerful, which was a better way to eradicate the cancer, the radiation also caused, if it was to the chest area, like for Hodgkin's lymphoma survivors, it caused massive damage um, to the cardiac system. And so those people then suffer from um, uh, heart disease and need stints and need pacemakers and and all manner of things. Um, So it was caused from the cancer treatment again, for which they're very happy. Um, but that further treatment then needs to be covered by insurance and, um, by, um, healthcare, um, insurance providers. So NCCS was able to both, um, pivot to insurance reform and at the same time make sure that it was considered a chronic disease. There's also another part that um, NCCS played in which NCCS played an important role um, and that's survivorship care plans which have been talked about now for almost two decades. The idea is that there is a significant record Um, whether it's physical or digital, that follows a cancer survivor from treatment back to their primary care physician so that um, if you develop a condition long-term, your provider can look back at your treatments Mm. simply. Now, granted, he can certainly look through your file, but it has to be gotten from your oncologist or your radiologist or whoever. A survivorship care plan would be something that would follow you, the patient, wherever you go. That's the good news. The bad news is that we are still trying to figure out, okay, who keeps that? Where where does it reside? With the patient? With the doctor? Who pays for it? Who pays for the upkeep? So NCCS has really been hard at work at making that um, a priority, as well as making sure that survivors aren't discriminated against. We only have a couple of minutes left or even less, uh, but I wanted to mention that you cite a number of people for their work in this battle. We already mentioned Susie Lay, but there's also Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen from the Bronx, Betsy Clark, Christine Logan. Any others who you would like Um, to mention? Catherine Logan, actually. but Catherine, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. And then certainly Ellen Stovall, who ironically um, was diagnosed and began treatment. She began treatment on the day that Nixon signed the National Cancer Act, and was, which was just a few months before Susie Lay was diagnosed and began treatment, both for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Ellen uh, came on board um, in the 90s and then became the CEO of NCCS and was just a wonderful asset at bringing the organization um, into the 20th century. And she died of cardiac, uh, a cardiac arrest as a result of her early treatment um, in 2016, but she was marvelous. They were, they're my heroes. They should be the heroes of all cancer survivors. Well, you've also been honored by the American Association of Cancer Research in 2014 for the work that you have been were doing for survivorship. Uh, congratulations! Thank you. Uh, what's your in the in the last minute or so? What's your biggest hopes for the future of the cancer survivorship movement? Uh, what work still needs to be done? 
Well, I think the two things that are the most important, um, one, that survivors everywhere understand they are not alone. They are not alone psychologically, physically, um, and and that understanding the history of our collective survivorship is important, which was my motivation for writing the book. And then secondly, that the medical community continue to recognize survivorship as a part of the cancer continuum. Um, you know, treatment is great, prevention is great, um, but survivorship um, still needs to be on everyone's radar. And, um, and, and for those who support survivors to understand, again, as I said before, cancer doesn't end when treatment does. But on the other side, life can perhaps even be sweeter because you recognize the value of every day. Judith L. Pearson's latest book is From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. It's from Lincoln Square Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much Le for being on our show. Leonard, thank you so much. It's been great. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast in iTunes and anywhere else that you get your podcasts. So pretty much all of them carry us. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on the show or just say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Org. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask you to support WBAI and Leonard Lopate at Large so that we can continue to bring you the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that you've come to expect from us. So please go right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep Leonard Lopate at Large and WBAI on the air. And one great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, from Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement by my guest, Judith Pearson. It's our way of saying thanks, but it's only possible if you make that call right now. So one last time, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thanks. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Michael Moss will discuss his latest book, Hooked. Food, free will, and how the food giants exploit our addiction. We'll see you then.